All right, Psalm 73. We're going to look at uh, the entire psalm, verses 1 through 28. Let's give our attention to God's word. A psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself... You despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail... But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Uh, The Bible says that all men are like grass, and that all man's glory is like the flower of the field. And that grass withers and flowers fade away. But God's word stands forever. Uh, So let me pray for us before we look at it more tonight. Heavenly Father, we do stop and ask that you would be with us. That you would be here. That you would be in Elliston Chapel. That you would work. That your word as it has gone out and, and will go out. That you will be with it and cause it to to do things. Father, we pray that your word would change our hearts. We can't change ourselves, but you can. So would you work in spite of our sin, in spite of our distraction, in spite of our fatigue, would you be at work? Father, we pray it and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I think we all know those uh, times where you experience sort of being stuck between two realities, or at least two perceived realities, where on the one hand you have something that 
something that you believe to be true, right? Something that you, I, I just, I know that this is real, this is true. And yet what I'm experiencing or what I'm seeing seems to be completely contradictory, right? Where you, it seems like both things are true that just can't be and you're, and you're just stuck. Uh, I'm going to give you a, a, a really ridiculous uh, example of that because uh, we're, we're going to have plenty of serious examples of that uh, throughout this you know, psalm and sermon tonight. And so I've debated about whether to even use this, and I'm probably going to immediately regret it. But um, one example of that that came to mind, I already regret it, but um, I came home. This is when we were in Louisville uh, several years ago. I came home one day. And Amy told me something uh, really incredible. She said that she so we used to have a cat, right? Not anymore. Um, uh, that's a whole other story. Um, she said, "I saw our cat, whom we had had for I don't know what seven, eight years, uh, jump from the floor onto the top of the refrigerator." And my first reaction was, "That can't happen." There's no way that happened. And so I started quizzing her about it. And like, all right, well, did you, you know, what exactly did you see? And, and she continued to say, I saw the cat jump from the floor, land on the top of the refrigerator. And so I'm stuck, right, between these, these two things that are just, right? On the one hand, I know my wife to be this very sane, reliable, trustworthy person. Why would you make that up? And on the other hand, I know what my eyes tell me, that our refrigerator's, you know, that's six feet. And it's a cat, and I've seen our cat jumping, like, it just, no. <laughs> and so I'm just stuck, right? I've got, I believe this, and yet now I have this doubt that, and, and you're just stuck. Um, I told you, it's a, it's a dumb example. Um, but we've all been there, right? No, it's probably not about a cat in a refrigerator, but we've all been there and it's an uncomfortable position because we don't like the tension. We don't like to live with the doubt, right? We want to, we want to sort of be, for it to be integrated, for it to make sense. It can be really uncomfortable to experience that doubt. And especially when that doubt is about more important things than, right, cats jumping on refrigerators. Right, when those doubts are about the, the deeper matters of life. Um, when there are things that you believe deeply to be true and yet your experience bears out something different, right? We can really feel stuck in our doubt, especially when it comes to things like what we believe about God and yet what we experience in life. Um, And that is really what this psalm is about. Uh, This semester, you know, we're studying through psalms, some selected psalms, and our theme every week is uh, dealing with feeling uh, because the psalms are... They're songs, right? And songs traffic in emotion. And we're emotional creatures. And uh, as, as really any song can potentially do, right, the psalms can help us to understand and to express and even to shape how we feel. And so tonight, as we look at Psalm 73, I think this psalm helps us to deal with our doubt, the doubt that we experience. So we're going to look at uh, three things tonight, really um, sort of uh, 
break down the psalm um, in three chunks. And the first thing that we're going to look at, uh, verses 1 through 15, uh, we're going to see the psalmist, uh, his perceived problem. He's got a problem with the world around him. Secondly, uh, verses 16 and 17, we're going to look at the problem of his perception. And then thirdly and finally, verses 18 through 28, we're going to see uh, the, the proper perception that the psalmist has. All right, so this is sort of an outline intensive night because we got some sub points. So for you folks that are really structured, this is going to be awesome. Um, all right, so our, our first point, the perceived problem that the psalmist experiences, verses 1 through 15. And it's actually two problems, sort of an A and a B. The first thing that the psalmist, the first problem that he perceives in the world, it's what we see in verses 1 through 12, and it's that the wicked seem to be prospering. Right? He's stuck between these two realities um, that he perceives. On the one hand, look at verse 1. What does he say? Uh, he recognizes truly God is good to Israel. Right? Asaph has grown up uh, in the covenant. Right? He's grown up uh, as one of God's people. And he, he's heard it his whole life. He believes, and, and no doubt, almost certainly has believed it in his heart, that God is good to his people. So on the one hand, I, Asaph is like, I know that to be true. God is good to his people. And yet, what he, when he looks around his life and he looks around the world, he sees something that seems to be at odds with that. And what he sees is that the people that are against God, right, the, the wicked, those that, that don't believe in God, their lives seem to be doing great. Um, in fact, things, things seem to be so good for them that they, they even mock God in verse 11. Right? He says, he looks around and people that do wicked, that have just chosen to live their life you know, completely uh, with no respect for God, um, they never seem to hurt. Uh, they seem to have plenty of food. They seem to never get in trouble. He says they, they seem to be super confident. Uh, they're very sure of themselves. They do whatever they want. They treat people however they want. They don't seem to be worried. Like they don't even have any anxieties. Life seems to be coming up all roses for the people that don't pay any attention to you. And so basically the psalmist is thinking and expressing, how can that be? How, how can wickedness, how can God, you know, uh, God be good to Israel, right? Those that are faithful. And yet, it seems like the, God is blessing wickedness. And I'm, I'm guessing if, if, you've, if you're a believer, if you've grown up in church, uh, you might very well have felt this way before too. right? You might look around uh, and see the lives of people around you that have decided to live just however they want to, and it seems to be working out for them. Right? You might look and see people that have decided to, they've decided to just, party like crazy. And, and the result of that seems to be that they have a ton of fun. There don't seem to be any consequences. Maybe you look around and you see people that have decided to use sexuality in, in just whatever way they want to. And, and it seems like the consequence of that is that 
they're having a great time. Or maybe you see, you look around and you see people that are cheating in class. They, they just rejected any sort of you know, moral compass. And they're cheating like crazy. And the consequence is that their grades are really good. Right? You see people cheat in business. And what happens oftentimes? Right? They, they make money. Um, or maybe you've seen or experienced some sort of injustice, right? Um, maybe somebody's hurt you and nothing happens to them. They seem to get away with it. Right? How, how can that be? Does God care about Israel or not? Now look, just sort of a little aside here. Let me, let me be clear to say that I'm not saying if you, if you do those things then you are not a Christian, okay? Right, like if, if you've cheated in class, if you've, you know, abused sexuality, right? I'm not saying if you do those things, then you are not a Christian. Um, that, that's not my point. But those, those are examples of uh, wickedness, of sin manifest, right? Um, so look, we can look around and see that people have decided to live however they want to, and, 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 it, and it goes fine for them, and it can be really difficult, right? It can be easy to think, like, it must be nice. What's the point? But he sees another problem also, part B, verses 13 to 15. Um, there's something else that he seems to, be, seems to be wrong with the world. It's not just that the wicked seem to be, you know, doing just fine. But it's also that he's suffering. You see that? Um, He's one of the ones that, that does love God. He's trying to live his life following God. He actually trusts God. And yet, he's looking around and saying, you know what's, what, good is, what good has come out of this? Because honestly, it just feels like every day I wake up and there's just more trouble. I feel like there's just one more thing knocking me down. And I'm going to guess, if you're, especially if you're a believer, that, that you can resonate with that to some degree. Maybe to a significant degree. Right? Um, what are you, what's the Christian? It's easy to look at, maybe, it's potentially easy to look at your life and think, what good is this getting me? Right? I'm actually trying to follow God and obey Him. And, you know, right? I, I don't live like that. I don't go out and party or whatever. And what do I get? Do I get a party? No, I, I'm actually bored and lonely a lot of times. And it's hard. It sure seems like it'd be easier to make friends a different way. Or I am endeavoring to, to pursue sexual purity. And, and what do I get? I, I don't have a significant other. Um, I, I don't feel like I'm being blessed. And maybe it's, you know, I'm not cheating in class. And what am I getting? I'm actually getting further down the class rank. Or maybe you look and think, I'm trying to follow God. Why, why would I get sick like this? Why would my family split up? Why would that thing happen to me? And so it's easy to look and think, what's the point? Because it doesn't seem to be working out. And look, we're going to continue to flesh this out tonight. It's the point of the psalm. But for now, I want you to see at least one thing. I want you to appreciate the honesty of this psalm. Isn't it really beautiful? Right? Think about the fact that God 
God ordained, mandated, right? He required that this song make it in his book. He requires, he wants his people to to sing these kinds of things. In other words, right, he recognizes that we're going to, to have that to doubt. Right? What, what a great, what a beautiful thing. And so when we experience those doubts, we, God doesn't want us to just stuff them away and ignore them. Pretend like they're not there. No, 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 I, I, don't, I don't think that. Happy thoughts, happy thoughts. No. Right, Psalm 73, among plenty of others. Right, God wants us to acknowledge our doubts and actually process them. All right, secondly, uh, as we, we continue on, uh, what we see is that the psalmist, he actually has, so he, he's, he's perceived this problem with the world. Secondly, what we need to see is that he's got a problem with his perception. Uh, and this is where the psalm comes to this big turning point. Right, he's really overwhelmed by this nagging question like we've said, of these two things that just seem to be true, but how can they be? And it was really frustrating to him, right? He says, look at verse 16, but when I thought how to understand it, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He keeps looking at it and looking at it and looking at it, and it just doesn't make sense. But what he needs is a change of uh, perspective or perception. I'm going to use those interchangeably. right? He's looking at things the wrong way. His perspective has got to change. Um, when we first moved into our neighborhood, uh, what, about five years ago, and I figured out a, you know, a, a route to run that I, that I liked, one of the first days that I ran this route, uh, so our neighborhood's uh, sort of, it has sort of high points, right, relative to the rest of Waco. And there's, there's one part of my run where you come over this hill, and just for, I don't know, several seconds, right, as you run, you, you get... You get this little glimpse of the, the distance, right? Uh, you can see Lake Waco and, and then beyond, right? Super flat, beyond. So you can kind of see the horizon. And one of the first days I ran it, as I'm running, I'm looking, and I, I see this just super tall building, this just enormous building out on the horizon. And it's just baffling to me because, right, I, I mean, I know Waco geography enough to know, like, there is just nothing out there, and that thing is Huge, like like Alico building or, or bigger. And so I'm running and I'm just staring at this thing and it makes no sense. And I keep looking at it and trying to figure it out. Like, what in the world is this enormous building? But as I as I continue to run down the hill, my you know as the road turns just a little bit, my perspective changes just a little bit. And what I what I realize as as the perspective changes is that this is not an enormous building on the horizon. It's actually a chimney of a house that's just in front of me. And I know that sounds super weird, but I can show it to you. You, you get it. Because you couldn't see the house. It was sort of hidden with these trees. And so it just seems like that, right? It seems like this super tall building, and I cannot keep looking at it. I can't figure it out. And all I needed was just a little different perspective, and then it all makes sense, right? Right? I see that note. It's in the foreground, And it's not that big. And that's what Asaph experiences. This sort of paradigm shift. And 
What was it that caused it? Um, uh, right, right, he had the wrong perspective. Uh, you see it back in verse 3. Um, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Right? His perception is off. Because his perspective or his perception is all about worldly things. He's looking at it wrong. He's looking at things from an earthly point of view and it's distorted. Right? He's seeing the surface. He sees the prosperity of the arrogant. But he's not really paying any attention to the arrogance. Right? He's looking at, at the worldly things that the wicked have, but not the spiritual. And so when he says, when he was trying to think about it, it's just confusing. But then something happens to change his perspective. And did you notice what it was? Look at verse 17. His change of perspective comes when he goes to worship. He goes into the presence of God. And now it's like me running down the hill. Now he gets it from a different angle and it makes sense. So what does he see? Well, we can't be too specific because the, the psalm, psalm isn't. But if you think about it, everything about what he would have seen and experienced at worship is going to, it's going to point to what? It's going to point to the reality, to the existence of God. It's going to point to the holiness of God. Right? Everything about the tabernacle and the temple is designed to show you how amazing, how holy God is. And by consequence, how not holy you are. Right? He, he would have seen sacrifices. He would have seen, he would have seen and, and been forced to remember the truth that God is so holy and that, that people are not. And that sin requires blood. Right? That there are serious consequences for sin. And he would have been forced to see at the same time that yet God is a God that, that not only requires sacrifice, but, but provides sacrifice. That he's a gracious God. And it, it reorients him. And you and I need the same thing. We need to see reality. Right? We have to remind ourselves that by nature we are... We are prone to see things the wrong way. And so what do, we, what do we need to do with our doubts? Well, we need to bring them and put them up against the truth. But we, right, the truth of God's word, as we, as we read it in the scripture, as we experience it, in a sense, played out in worship. Right? We don't need to... Right? I think a lot of times we can tend to think like, well, I just kind of need to step back from it all and take a break. And right? Actually, no, it's the opposite. Right? He experiences his change of perspective when he's, when he's faced with the truth of God and worship. All right, so thirdly and finally, we need to, we're going to sort of drill down into that and see what the psalmist, the psalmist gives us. Um, he explains now how he sees rightly. Right? The, uh, point three, the proper perception. Verses 18 to 28. Now he's beginning to see things correctly, and he tells us about it. Um, and I think, uh, I think we see three things, at least, that he now sees in a different way. So A, B, and C. Uh, a, or one, whatever. Uh, the first thing that he now has a proper perception of is the destiny of the wicked. Verses 18 to 20. 
So now he's got this eternal perspective and he sees what God has to say about, about what wickedness will receive. And it's not pretty. Right? He sees the truth that actually the wicked are not just sort of sitting pretty and everything's turning up roses. That they're actually in a really dangerous spot. God says that, um, or he says that God has set them in slippery places. Right? You think about our expression, right? Slippery slope. You think about maybe walking down uh, the bank of a river, right? If it's sort of muddy. And it may not seem like it's that dangerous. You go slow, but, but what happens? If you start to slip, you're, you're only going to pick up speed, right? That's kind of the picture. Um, it's, a scary, it's a scary position. Uh, verse 27, he sums it up. And he says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Right, we get the, the picture of the ultimate end of those that don't trust God. And that there's really nothing but death. Right? He even talks about he uh, treats them like phantoms. Right? Like they just, they just sort of disappear. There's, there's no substance there. That's the reality. And so we have to remind ourselves right, what appears to be the wicked prospering is actually the opposite. It seems like this sin that they're engaged in is just benefiting them. They're having a great time. Uh, But the scripture tells us different. Romans 1 talks about how the sin itself is actually its own judgment. That that what God tends to do with people um, that that want to run their own way is is he just lets them. And actually the, the judgment of sin is the dysfunction that that sin brings itself. And we get the picture right that justice is going to be served in the end. That wickedness, wickedness is going to be punished. Wrongs are going to be righted. And look, if, you, if you're not a believer, if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, we, we're super glad you're here. And I hope that this, I hope that you hear this and I hope it calls you to, re, to repent, to turn to God. Um... To, to put your trust in him. And, and look, just in case you're thinking, well, but I'm, I'm tracking with what you're saying. And if I, I'm recognizing now that I'm one of the wicked and I'm on the slippery slope and that, you know, my ultimate end is just to perish. Well, then what's the point? I want you to see the next two things that the psalmist now has a better perspective of. Okay. The second thing B, he now has a proper perception of himself. Look at verse 21 and 22. Um, Now that he sees things from God's perspective, right, he sees himself the right way. And basically he he recognizes that he's been thinking about everything wrongly and he confesses that. He thought he was able to look at things objectively and and see God's providence and and see through it. But now he realizes, he, he says, I was like this just dumb animal trying to understand the deep things of God. I think we could say it this way. It seems like he's beginning to realize that he's actually a lot more like the wicked than he thought. Right? Asaph seems to be humbled before God. And, and now he's beginning to realize, maybe I don't deserve God's blessing like I thought I did. Maybe I'm not so different you know, uh, as, as the, the beast. Right? Maybe I'm not so different than the wicked. 
It made me think of like the uh, sort of classic story, the, the rebellious teenager, right? You have your teenage years, maybe high school years, um, where at some point, right, teenagers can look and like you, your parents are just the dumbest people in the world. And they're just out to give you a hard time. And it doesn't make any sense. And they just sort of keep you down. And, but then at some point, usually, you know, you go off to college. And, and oftentimes you begin to realize, you know, actually, maybe my parents aren't the dumbest people in the world. Maybe my parents actually love me. And maybe, maybe it wasn't that they were so terrible to live with. Maybe it was actually me that was hard to live with. Um, I think I told you the story of my friend that um, said he woke up on his 21st birthday and was kind of having one of these moments, right, as he was growing up. And he called his dad and he said, Dad, uh, uh, I just want to tell you, I, I think you're right. And his dad said, well, okay, about what? And he said, well, about, about most everything, as far as I can tell. And he said there was this long pause and his dad said, I've waited a long time to hear that. Right? Um, you, you get the idea, right? If, if we see ourselves rightly, right, if we see ourselves in light of God's reality, um, we begin to realize that we're actually a long way from being righteous and that we don't deserve God's blessing. Um, and that reality actually keeps us from being self-righteous. But So, yeah, so, so we begin to see that there may not be that much difference between us and the wicked. All right, the last thing I want us to see uh, that the psalmist sees and now has a proper perception of. Uh, he has a proper perception of God's presence and his blessing. Verse 23 to 28. Um, Asaph, yes, he does see himself rightly and that he's a sinner and that he doesn't deserve God's uh, favor. But basically... He, he sees that he has it. That he does have God's favor. Um, that even in the midst, he realizes now what is true. That even in the midst of him being just this, you know, beast toward God. That even in the midst of that, God was with him. That God was actually dumping buckets of blessing on his head. That God was with him. I mean, right, these verses, as, as difficult as the psalm is, these verses are some of the most beautiful. Maybe in all the psalms. He says that God was with him, that he was holding his hand. He basically has the new perspective that God loves him like a good father. He's come to realize what we talked about last semester, what Hebrews 12 tells us. Uh, listen to Hebrews 12, 5 through 7, uh, and then uh, verse 11, I think. And it says, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Right, you see... the. The author of Hebrews is using the illustration of of parent and child and saying that sometimes parents use, they actually put difficulty into the lives of children because they love them. They bring discipline that feels painful for a while because they love them. Right? 
Right in high school, it might seem it, it, it might seem to be awesome if you had indifferent parents who just let you do whatever you wanted. That'd be awesome, but would it? Right? Of course not. Um, and the psalmist begins to see that he has a God that, that actually loves him so much that he's willing to put difficult things in his life. Um, and that those difficult things, the sufferings that he experiences, as opposed to being evidences of, God's, of God not loving him, is actually the exact opposite. He begins to realize that his greatest blessing has nothing to do with earthly things. Right? He has this now spiritual, eternal perspective. And what he says, right, he's just blown away by this thought that, that the greatest blessing that God has that he can give is himself. Whom have I in heaven but you? That God loves him enough that he's, he's basically... He basically says, look, I'm willing to to let you, in a sense, make you suffer so that you'll see that I'm the best thing in the world for you and that nothing else is going to make you happy, not like me. Uh, He's, in a sense, forcing Asaph and, and hopefully us to see, I love you, that I want to be with you. And look, you and I get that truth displayed in a, in, in a much deeper way than Asaph ever, ever saw. Uh, right before the author of Hebrews talks about God disciplining us like children um, in, in the very beginning of, of uh, chapter 12, which Bradley and I did not work out, actually. It was God's providence. Um, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says this. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Right, you've heard me end sermons like this several times, but right, what was the joy that was set before Jesus? Because Hebrews says that there was something that, that Jesus looked at and he said, I'll take all the death, I'll take all the pain, I'll take the rejection of my father, I'll take it all because I get that. That's worth it. That joy, what what was the joy that was set before him? It's you and me. That what Jesus looked at and said, it's all worth it if I get that, is me and you. That he wants to be with us. So much so that he would endure the ultimate example of the wicked prospering, right? Of going to the cross, where it seemed like evil is coming up Nothing but spades. It's all working out right for the bad guys. And yet it was the most beautiful and vivid vivid example of God dumping blessing on his people. How can those two things go together? They can't. Except in the cross, right? In the love of Christ. That's the good news. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we have... We have uh, tread in waters very deep tonight. We pray that you would help us to understand them, to believe them, to believe you, to believe that you want to be with us. Um, Father, we pray that you would take these realities and press them into our hearts. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.